go to Nashville and see the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, it's a good one. Come on. Yes. Say that again. Oh, the Shaolin Temple. Nice. Little Kung Fu. I like it. Like it, Joy. Participate in Dancing with the Stars competition. I like it. That means you got to get famous first. All right. Just saying. Oh, local, local. All right, there's local. I saw a hand come up right back here. Yes. Go to San Francisco. Nice. All right, so let me, so let me, let me ask you this question. So those are things, right? We all, we all have things that we want, want to do. I checked off right off. One of mine was have a sweet potato biscuit. So that one's done. I've checked that one off my, off my list. So, so we, we've got things that we just want to do in this life. And some are meaningful, like falling in love with the right person. And some are just frivolous. They're just things that we want to enjoy. And I think God's okay with all of that because he created this world to have a lot of experiences. But what if he came to you and he said to you, you've got six hours. That's all you got left. It, it might be that you've got to pick one of those things on your bucket list, right, to do it. Or maybe you could get a couple. What if he just said, what if he said, you've only got six more hours? Right? All of us have an end. What if, what if God said he, he gave us a heads up right at the six-hour mark? And then what if he added to that, in these six hours, I'm only going to let you say 47 words. That's it. You get 47 so, so, so we think a lot about what we would do, but there's another big question. What would we say? 47 words over six hours, and then you move on to eternity. And that's the moment that Jesus stepped into with his father when he walked upon this earth. And these are his 47. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We're doing it out of the King James for the series. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I gotta believe that those were some of the most intentional moments of Jesus' life. I've gotta believe that he knew that he had six hours left and he had 47 words to give to the world before he breathed his last. I got to believe that he put a lot of time and thought in exactly what he was supposed to say. His last messages in humanity, divinity filling humanity that he would give to the world and give to us. And we're going to spend the next several weeks digging around into these sayings. We're going to get into some deep water. The pool at the City Life Church has a deep end to it. Are you with me? Come on, sometimes we, we, we get into the shallow waters, and that's good. It's good to spend time in the shallow. But sometimes it's good to get in over our head. You, are you a Bush Gardens person? Anybody, anybody, any Bush Gardens people, right? You got little kids? Where do you go if you got little kids? Land of the Dragon, Sesame Street. I think it's called, is it called Elmo's World? Is it called Elmo's World? I'm calling it that tonight. It's, Sesame Street. All right, so, so there's some rides in there. You got the roller coaster, you got the little drop zone thing. But at some point, there should be something inside of you that says, I want to try the Mott Tower, right? There should be, I want to try the Griffin. There's something inside Elmo's World, the Sesame Street Forest, that's great when you're four. But there should be something that says, I want to experience something that's a little bit more adventuresome. And, and the Bible has some shallow water places in there 
that we get started in, but there should be something inside of us that longs for the grown-up part of the amusement park of the adventure of God's Word. And so in this series, I'm just sometimes you might feel like you're in over your head. That's okay. That's how we grow. That's how we learn to swim in the deep part. And so in this journey, if there's things that are hard to understand, that are hard to grasp, then we've got email. You can Facebook us. You can call us. We answer our phone calls. We love midweek conversations about stuff that we've been digging around at during the week. But we want to be stretched by these words. We want to be stretched by these hours on the other side of these weeks. Jesus, we know that these 47 words that you pick them, because they're supposed to say something to us. They're supposed to challenge us. They're supposed to guide us. They're supposed to direct us. And we know, Father, that, that when we get into the deep water, that you smile. Because you know that that's us saying to you, I'm hungry for the more. And may it be that all of us would be hungry for the more in this series, in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. All right, so... It was a few summers ago. You know, we, we love to boat in the summer. That's one of the ways that we invest in our rest. We use that phrase here at City Life. We're going to be doing a series on rest uh, th at some point this year. We do at least one series on rest throughout the year. And so uh, we, we invest in our rest by being on the water. And so we would, we'll leave early in the morning sometimes, and, and Monday's my day off. And so we'll go up to Lake Ann, and we'll spend the whole day on the water, eat a couple of meals. You know, we get on the water by 10 and come off after dark. And, and so we're coming back from from Lake Anna, you know, you're just, you're worn out. Sometimes it's good to get worn out from your rest. You with me? And so, so we were worn out from our day of resting. You're salty and sunburned and dehydrated and tired. And everybody gets to sleep on the way home except for me, right? Because I'm the one that's driving. And then you've also got this, you know, rather large thing attached to your car. So you have to really be careful. And so we're driving on these back roads out in Spotsylvania and Louisa, right? The roads are narrow and it's dark and there's no street lights and everybody's snoring and asleep except Vanessa because, you know, she doesn't snore when she sleeps. And so, so that was one of the kids in the back. And so we're riding along. It's just quiet, quiet. So if you're a boater, you know that the Coast Guard requires some things of you on a boat. And one's a noisemaker when you're in distress. So I'm going to give you a chance to put your fingers in your ears if you'd like, if, if you're an Elmo's World kind of person. I, I, won't, I won't put it in the mic. You ready? All right, that's just a little taste. You want another taste? Okay, the yeses have it. That's pretty loud, isn't it? All right, now imagine yourself in a Chevy Trailblazer. As big as this room is, right? So condense yourself in an SUV. And it's quiet. And you're just relaxing. Then all of a sudden you go around a turn and something falls on top of the bag. This is, I'm not making this up. Come on, this is real life stuff falls on the top of this bag. Now, if you were to push this button and hold it in, it will not give up. It will go until everything in this can has come out. So I know. So, so something falls, a ski or something falls on. And, and then it just keeps going. It must have lasted for more than a minute. It, it is a miracle that we are all not dead, right? 
Because if we had had a heart condition, bam, it would have been over. How we didn't put the thing in the ditch, they all woke up, Vanessa stopped snoring, right? And, and, and so everybody, you know, there's this burst of adrenaline, and it, it is the loudest thing that I've ever heard in my life. The loudest thing that I've ever heard. And I can hear it right now, echoing, and, and my, my heart's palpitating just thinking about it, right? So why am I telling you that story? Because I think these 47 words, I think they're the loudest moments in history. I think they are the loudest words that have ever been spoken. And they are echoing and reverberating throughout time. And even though we weren't there, we can still hear them today. And it should wake us up out of our spiritual slumber if we're stuck in one. If we're in a spiritual slump, it shakes us. It releases something inside of us that causes us to be incredible. It enables us to have a, a, a supernatural sense of clarity. And if you don't have any of that, that's part of my prayer, is that you're going to get all of that through this series. That you're going to hear the, the volume of these texts, and it's going to stir you. It's almost going to be that you've got to put your fingers in your ear because God's voice is going to be so loud in your life. Come on, can you believe that with me? Wow, that biscuit's looking good. You're going to gauge my devotion to the Williamsburg campus as to whether or not I can make it through the whole service without eating that. So either just having a picture on the screen tomorrow or a one in hand. We'll, we'll see. It's not looking good right now for Williamsburg. All right. So I'm going to start with this one. Of course, we're just going to spend a few minutes on this one because I believe that the, the intent of Jesus' message that he conveyed when he said, woman, behold thy son, and son, behold thy mother, that, 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 that he was talking about everything that we talked about last week. This idea of your life being connected and joined together with other people. So we're not going to spend as much time on this one. We're going to spend a lot of time on the other six because we really preached this one last week. But we do want to give it a nod because it is one of the big seven. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to John 19. John 19, I'm going to start verse, reading in verse 25. Now I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, and then there was Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John who's writing this gospel, he said to her, Dear woman, behold, here is your son. But in the Greek, there was a, there was a word behold that was inserted there. And then he said to his disciple, Behold thy mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, I want to I talk about this phrase just a little bit. Jesus had six different words to choose from when he used the word behold, right? So he says, woman, behold. And then he turns to John and he uses that same word again, behold. And there's an exactness to the Greek language that escapes the English language because oftentimes we'll have one word that has lots of different meanings that we understand from the context. But in the, in the, in the Greek, the, the, the scripture that was written in had lots of words. Jesus picked one in particular. He picked the word behold that is always a command and it always precedes something that is significant to follow. Because I could say, behold, the sweet potato biscuit. <laughs> and that would be a perfectly appropriate use of that word, right? If, 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 you're, if you're at the store and you're looking for something and you finally find it, right, and you were to say, behold, the Ritz crackers, right? That would be a little bit over the top. 
just giving you a heads up, right? There's moments, you ever been around people that are a little bit over the top? They're, they're dramatic. You wouldn't know anybody like that, right? They're just, so, so, so that's not one of these moments. Jesus doesn't pick the word that's a kind, casual suggestion. He doesn't pick a word that says, hey, I've got something I'd like to suggest to you. And then to something that would to follow would be, maybe I'll pay attention and maybe I'm not. In his time and in his language, in his day, you did not use this word unless you're going to tell somebody what to do. It's a command. It's not a choice. If you're a parent, you understand what I'm talking about. There's times where we give our children choices, and then there are times where we, we, it's not a conversation. It's a, it's a command. Jesus is using the command word for behold. And it always precedes something that you would know I've got to hear. So everybody in that moment, when he chose that word, they would have set up, they would have taken notice because they knew a command was coming from their Lord and they knew that whatever it was, it was going to be important. And everybody waited to see what it was going to be. And then that's what he chooses to say. He says, hey, I want you and you to view your relationship with each other as if you were a mother and a son. And if you continue to read in Scripture, it says that that from that day forward, John began to take Mary into his home as if she was a mother to him. But she had other children. It wasn't as though that she was childless and it wasn't as though he was motherless. Right. So if you've been married and you've navigated in-law relationships, you know that sometimes they can be difficult waters, right? Because there's new family relationships and priorities that are beginning to to come together. They begin to compete with each other. And that's part of what we understand that their world wasn't any different from this world. And Jesus was saying something pretty significant. He was saying, I don't want to displace the relationships that you have, but I want you to see this relationship for the importance that it is. He's saying to each of them, Because he's going to build a church. You can listen to it last week. I'm going to join people's lives together. And I think that in this moment, he's saying to people, these church relationships, these spiritual relationships, these church family relationships, they're not supposed to push out your, your biological family relationships. But if you were to draw a circle and you were to say, what are the relationships that I can't live without? What are the relationships that I have to keep? What are the relationships that I need to maintain? What are the relationships that are going to be primary? I think Jesus on the cross in this moment is saying to us, and he was saying to them, and he's saying to the world, your church relationships should be central to who you are. They should be primary. They should be foundational. They should be cornerstones in your life. Not to displace others, but human capacity has the ability to champion many relationships that are supposed to be deep. It takes work. It takes prioritizing. It means, yes, setting aside some things. It's spending maybe less time in some interests and some hobbies. It might be spending less time investing in some superficial relationships. But we should be asking ourselves the question, in my circle for the relationships that are primary, are they central to my life? When people look at me, would they see that these relationships that I have in my church are relationships that help define who I am? The other part I think that's important, which is the last thing I'm going to say about this, is that I love how Jesus is the one giving the command here. That there's three people involved in this moment. There's his mother, there's John, and there's Jesus. And I think part of what we're supposed to learn from that is that sometimes we need other people who love us enough to step into our life and challenge us based on the priorities that they observe in us. That sometimes it takes a third person to give input to help motivate us 
dare I use the word correct us, if there's things in our lives that are out of balance. And we use this phrase all the time. There should be people in your life that you've given permission to say no to you. I have people in my life that I've given them permission to say no to me. That's what helps keep us safe. It's making sure that there's a third person in the conversation. It's just not me and someone else trying to figure it out, that there's an allowance of a voice of someone from the outside looking in to challenge us and to correct us and to direct us. And last week we talked about this idea of your life being a stone, being worked into an altar, which is a prophetic picture of the church. And it's not as though we just get to pick where we fit in. It's about where the, the, what's already put together invites us to belong. That we don't just get to say, this is what I want to do and this is who I want to be and you better make room for me. That's not what community feels like. There's always a heart of deference that comes from the one that's being added in and it recognizes the voice of the other to see things about ourselves that we don't see ourselves to make sure we get put in and fit in just the right way. For all of us, Jesus says to you, and he says to me, make sure you've got the right relationships in your life. I'm dying so that you can have them, embrace them. All right. All right, let's dig into where we're going tonight. All right, Luke 23. Luke 23. I'm going to start reading in verse 34. Twenty-three, thirty-four. Jesus says, again, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And the crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers, they mocked him. In verse 36, I'm going to read to 38. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. Do you remember the high priest wanted it to say that he said he was? And Pilate said, No, no, no. It's going to say, This is. This is the king of the Jews. And so that's what was on the sign in three languages above him. Now, I think this statement is, is terribly curious, and we're going to dig around in this tonight, because my expectation of what he would say is, forgive them, Father, because I'm about ready to die for their sin, right? We talk about Jesus being the Lamb of the God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist's declaration of Jesus was when, when, when he came out to be baptized. He said, behold, right? He used that same word, behold. This is a command. Something significant is going to follow. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's something inside of me when I read this text that I always want to find it. My natural inclination is to see Jesus say, forgive them, Father, because I'm about ready to die for the sin that they're committing. Forgive them, Father, because I am the Lamb of you, right, that takes away the sins of the world. But that's not what he says. He says, forgive them because they know not what they do. Now, if you want to believe that maybe Jesus got his words mixed up, he was under duress, that it was a terrible, no, no, 47 words, six hours, he knew exactly what he was supposed to say. It's one of the loudest moments in history, and it communicates something that we find when we get into the deep side of the pool. And if you want to find it, then we turn to numbers. Come on. Digging around in the Old Testament. Numbers 15. Beginning in verse 22. Because this phrase that Jesus used, every Jewish person that would have been there would have thought about these writings. 
Numbers 15, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to read to 24, and then I'm going to jump over to 34. But, but suppose you unintentionally fail to carry out all these commands that the Lord has given you through Moses. And suppose your descendants in the future fail to do everything the Lord has commanded through Moses. If the mistake was made unintentionally and the community was unaware of it, the whole community must present a young bull for burnt offering as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it must be offered along with its prescribed grain offering and liquid offerings. We're going to talk about the drink offering and with one male goat for a sin offering. All right, let me jump over to verse 34. Now listen to this contrast. I'm going to use 32. One day while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they discovered a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. The people who found him doing this took him before Moses and Aaron and the rest of the community, and they held him in custody because they did not know what to do with him. As you know, violating the Sabbath in ancient times was a capital offense. Then the Lord said to Moses, listen to what he says, this man, the man must be put to death. Come on, serious business. The whole community must stone him outside the camp. Verse 36, so the whole community took the man outside the camp and stoned him to death just as the Lord had commanded Moses. As you dig around in the Old Testament, you find that there are only two options for people who commit an intentional sin. People who do something that they knew that they were not supposed to do. Just two. And all of the Mosaic law. They could either be cut off and ostracized and kicked out. They were not allowed to be a part of community. They have to go live in a foreign land. They were either cut off or they were put to death. That's it. Those are the only two choices. If you did something intentionally wrong. Gathering wood on the Sabbath day. You and I go, hey, how can that be so serious? But we know, like we talked about last week, God's writing a story. He's writing a story. The only way that you could be released from your responsibility is if you could demonstrate that you did not know. If you could demonstrate that you stepped into a moment where you were just ignorant, where you were naive, you, you didn't know better, and if you had, you would have done it differently, then there's a provision that we just read. There's a provision where, where the Israelites were allowed to extend forgiveness because they did not know. You think it's a coincidence that this is the phrase that Jesus is using on the cross? Forty-seven words, six hours. He knows exactly what he's trying to say. I don't think this statement about Jesus forgive them for they know not what they do is about his atoning death. That comes later in our conversation where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me here? I think he's teaching the world something. There is a grace and a forgiveness that God extends if you don't know. There's a grace and a forgiveness that comes if you just don't know any better. And that's the forgiveness that's given in this first statement on the cross. And what's interesting here is that you only get to use that one time. Are you with me? You get one get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't come back the next time and say, I didn't know. Because the leaders in Israel would say, no, 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 no. Because when we flip through the pages, we find that you were here six months ago, right, George? And, and just picking that name out, not being prophetic. And... You said you didn't know then. You can't say you didn't know now. Once you know, you're responsible. Once you know, then there's an expectation to live up to the truth that you know. Once the revelation comes, there's expectation. 
There's forgiveness in our ignorance, but he does not let us stay in that place. He expects us to know how to live once he teaches us the right path. All right, so let's dig around into John 9. Come on, getting into deep water tonight. John 9. Oh, this is a good story. I'm going to read 1 through 3 and then 35 through 41. 1 through 3. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or his parents? Because they lived with the belief that when bad things happened, it was always a judgment and a consequence from God for somebody doing something wrong. Verse 3 says this, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sin, Jesus answered, this happened. So the power of God could be seen in him. Now let's jump over to verse 35. Verse 35. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, Who is he, sir, that I want to believe in him? You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. And then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think that they see that they are blind. And some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby asked him, are you saying that we're blind? Verse 41, and if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim that you can see. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can interpret this text, and this is the one that, that I prefer. I think when Jesus said that I came so that the blind might see, and then those who see might become blind, that he's not talking about two different groups of people. You can render the text that way. That's a, that's a fair way to interpret it. I think when Jesus said, I came so that the blind might see, and so that those that see might become blind, I think he's talking about the same person. I think he's talking about the same group of people. And this is what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, those who are blind, those who don't know any better, I've come to show them a better way to live so that they can see. So, that, so I'm going to teach them a different way to live. And once you see, I want you to become blind. Blind in what way? I want you to become blind to the way that you used to live. I want you to become blind to this old way of living. I want you to become blind to those things that used to drag you down. I want you to become blind to those things that used to lure you. I want to lead you into a life that is so transformative, you do not even see those things anymore. A restoration of innocence. I believe that. I believe that's possible. We're all on that journey. It's powerful, isn't it, when you're taking your kids when they're really little through the mall and they see stuff, right, that... If they were teenagers, you're teaching them, right? For guys, that's another sermon and another time to guard your eyes to where you're looking. Little kids, they just, they see it, they're blind to it. Blind to it. They don't know anything about it. I want that kind of innocence deep inside of me. The ugliness of this world that my life used to be immersed in, there's a place where we see it and choose not to do it. I want to get to a place where I just don't see it anymore. A blind that sees in the seeing that becomes blind. That's the person that I want to be. I want to know how to live, and I don't want to be drawn away by the wrongness of my life that it used to be. He wants us to know how to live. Do you think that blind person said to Jesus, found him a few days later, and said, could you make me blind again? Because it's a lot of responsibility being able to see i got chores i got to do around the house now. I used to say I, didn't, I can't cut the grass because I can't see. 
I used to say, I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to help with the dishes after because I can't see. Do you think he went back to Jesus and said, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of work being able to see. There's a responsibility that comes with vision. I would just rather be blind. But that's the conversation that we have with God all the time, isn't it? I don't want the responsibility that comes with I want the revelation. I don't want the responsibility that comes with it. When he enables us to see, there is a, a new place of responsibility that he expects us to walk in and to not be afraid of and to not want to go back to who we used to be. So you might be here tonight and you're saying, Fred, how, how can I know how to live? How, how can I know what God expects? I hear, you might be here tonight and you're saying, I hear what you're saying. I can buy into it. I can buy into what you're saying. Jesus is on the cross. He says, forgive the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's not talking about atonement. He's talking about forgiveness that comes from ignorance. And I've been ignorant at times in my life, but now I'm beginning to read God's word and I'm hanging out with other people who are devoted followers of Christ and I'm, I'm learning, I'm seeing stuff. But I want to see more. I, I want to be a person who knows how to live. I hope that already tonight that's stirring inside. Now that's a lifelong conversation we're going to have together, but we can give you one step that you can take tonight. If you want to know how to live, it all starts with knowing who you are. Luke 23. Come on. Deep water. Luke 23. Where we started. Beginning in verse 34. And I'm going to jump down to 38. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 38. The genius of the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke as he writes his gospel. He slips this in, which isn't an accident. It's an important part. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was. And the sign that was placed on the cross, even though Pilate didn't know it, in his ignorance he was being used by God to send us a message that we desperately need to understand. One of the loudest moments in history. Because Jesus knew who he was, which was what was on the sign. He knew how to live. His circumstances did not dictate to him who he was. The sign declared to the world who he was, and he knew exactly what he was supposed to be in that moment. When you know who you are, you know how to live as desperate as your circumstances might become. And the person that Jesus is, it surprises us. I hope it surprises you. He's a king. He's a king. With thorns for a crown, iron spikes for scepters, and a cross for a throne. It's not the kind of stuff that kings usually roll with in their life. You die for kings. Kings don't die for us. We protect kings. The king doesn't lay his life down for us. When a king is facing desperate times, the great people around them surround that person so that they can live for another day because they understand the king's survival is paramount to the life of the community and people are willing to give their life for the protection of the king. But here we have the king giving his life for us. All right, so one of my favorite movies of all time is The Last Samurai, right? It's not for the faint of heart. Right? And there's this amazing scene when Nathan, the Algren, they say his name. How was that? Was that good? Have you seen that movie? I've been practicing that today. All right, Algren, Nathan Algren. And Katsumoto is the leader of the samurais that are in rebellion of Japan. And so some assassins are sent one night to attack them. And, and Katsumoto is up on this stage, and they're kind of goofing around doing this little play. And when everybody sees the assassin and people start dying, everybody gathers around him. 
and other samurai are falling dead all around, but somebody else runs in and fills the gap because they know they need to get Katsumoto to safety. It's a powerful scene in the movie. You don't see Jesus doing that. You don't see him asking people to gather around him to die for him. He says, no, 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 I'm the king, and I'm going to die for you so that you can live for me. And because he knows who he is, his circumstances fail at causing confusion in his identity. Come on, deep, deep waters tonight. We see mockery here in the text. They're making fun of him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he's the Messiah, he can come down off of the cross. And we know he could have done all of those things. People mocked and made fun of him. When you and I walk in this life, when other people mock us, it does not feel good, does it? All of us in this room have been mocked, some in, in ways that are terribly harmful. And if you've lived and endured in a, in a season of mockery, maybe it came from the voice of a parent, or maybe it came from a, an authority, maybe it came from a church. You know as you begin to face that noise of that mockery day in and day out, you enter an identity crisis. Insecurity begins to enter in your heart. We begin to question who we are because of who other people say we're not, but not Jesus. He knew who he was, even in the face of mockery. And because he knew who he was, he knew how he must live, especially in this moment. Suffering, chronic pain. Terminal diagnosis, suffering that's of an emotional nature that's not of your physical body. Many of you in this room, you suffer. You suffer now. And for some of you, your diagnosis is such that you probably, unless God steps in, you may walk in a place of suffering for the rest of your life. And if we're not careful, when we suffer, we enter an identity crisis. We begin to wonder, maybe God isn't who he says he is. And if he's not who he says he is, maybe I'm not who I think that I owe the devil loves to get you going down that road. You see, all of these things are happening to Jesus for lots of reasons. But one of them is because the devil is trying to create an identity crisis in Christ. Because he understands the principle, when you don't know who you are, you don't know how to live. And the devil knows that his time is short. If Jesus continues to know how he's supposed to live, even in these final six hours, it's over for him. So he comes at his identity over and over and over and over again. Abandonment. There's just a few that are there with Jesus. He had crowds of thousands followed him around. Just moments before, as he enters the city, Hosanna in the highest, which means no one can save by you. It was a declaration. You are the son of the living God. Throngs of people, more than you can count, and they're all gone. Ever been abandoned in your life? Maybe you were abandoned by parents. Maybe they chose an addiction over your life. Those wounds go deep in a person's heart. Maybe you've experienced abandonment in many other ways. Maybe, again, it's come through the church that you've trusted and called home that's hurt you and wounded you. When we don't know who we are, we don't know how to live. And the devil loves to, to berate us with mockery. He loves to, 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 to try to heap suffering upon us. He loves to, to, to take us into places where we suffer abandonment because he knows that if he can create an identity crisis in us, then it might be that 
that we forget how we're supposed to live. Not to the consequence just of ourselves, but to the people that are around us, especially if you are a father and a husband, to the detriment that it is to your family, unto generations to come. But there he was. It's not an accident, the first of the seven phrases that he chose. He's saying to the world, know who you are. Because if you do, it does not matter what happens around you in this natural world or stirs in the spiritual realm around you that you cannot see. If you know who you are, you will know how you must live. Invite the worship team to come back up. Come on, it's good to get in deep water, isn't it? Anybody reading through the Bible? Chronological plan? Come on, if you miss a few days, just, just you know, don't, don't fall under the condemnation if I've got to catch up to restart. No, you just pick up with a day and you keep going. Come on. So I'm reading this morning with my espresso and a few sweet potato biscuits. Behold. I want to push this button right now again, but I'm not going to do it. Restraint. I know who I, who I am. I know how I must live. 21-25. Oh, this is good. In those days, Israel had no king. We were going to finish up a different way. And I, I read this this morning. I was like, oh, come on, God. You're, you're just too good. In those days, Israel had no king. And listen to what it says. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. I'm going to read it again. In those days, Israel had no king. And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Stand with me. You've got to decide what sign you're going to let hang over your head in this life. Lots of people are going to give you signs. Lots of people are going to try to tell you who you're supposed to be and what your, what your, what your sense of, of, of identity is supposed to come through. You've you, you, you got to decide what sign is going to go over your head. You get to pick. This is what my sign says. Jesus is my king. That's what my sign says. Jesus is my king. Because when I understand that I am his, when I belong to him, where he owns me, I'm his possession, that he rules over me and governs over my life, when, when I live with a sign, that says, Jesus is my king, then I know who I am. I am a child of the living God. And when I know who I am, I know how I must now live, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what the world throws at me, regardless of what other people may or may not do around me, regardless of how the devil might tempt me. I just look up at that sign, and I know who I belong to, that reminds me who I am. And I never, I don't always do it, but I never can say the excuse. I didn't know. 
There is a revelation that he wants you to walk in of how you're supposed to live. There is a place of seeing that God wants to give to each of us. Come on, over these next several weeks. There's a place of understanding and realizing it's going to be hard work. It's going to take a lot of change. And all of that change and all of that seeing and all of that understanding and all of that knowing of how we're supposed to live is going to flow out of this identity, this idea of I know who I am because there is a sign over my head that says, Jesus, you are my king. So as we worship in this song together, as we wrap up this service, I hope that you're going to have a conversation with God. Put a sign up here over me, Lord. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. He is my king. Let's worship together.